0: Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring International Tennis Hall of Famer, former world number one, Mats Velander, and Texas Longhorn all time great, two time All American Johnny Levine. Your host of KickServeRadio.com is Andy Zoden. So take it away, AZ.
1: And take it away, I will. Kickserveradio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We are post-French Open and, of course, joined by three-time French Open champion, seven-time Grand Slam champion, Mats Vylander, two-time All-American at the University of Texas, Johnny Levine. I'm Andy Zoden. And, Mats, because of the fact that it was a very celebratory year for you, over there in Paris this year, celebrating the 40th anniversary of your win in 1982. You had a lot going on, a lot of balls in the air. Was it a great experience for you? Was it a, too much to deal with, or, or was it just another day at the office?
2: Um, it was not another day in the office for sure, Andy. Great to be with you and Johnny later. Um, it was not another day in the office for sure, but at the same time, I mean, do you celebrate 40 or 30 or, or 50? I'm not sure. So uh, it made me feel uh, kind of old for sure. I ran into a couple of guys that I played in 82, José Luis Clerk in the semis, um, which was really cool. But yeah, I, I think the coolest thing was that Amelie Moresmo, the tournament director, asked me to uh, do interviews on court. And uh, and she did something for the first time that's never been done in the French Open, where a man presents the winner's trophy for the women. And, of course, Billie Jean King presented uh, Rafa Nadal with his 14th Roland Garros trophy. So that was pretty cool. but. Andy, 40 years, I mean, really, 45, 40, 35, 50, 50, if I'm around, and I'm guessing that's why they celebrate 40, because the guy (laughs) that had a 50th anniversary is not around, I'm not sure, but um, I mean, it's special to be there, it's special to play the legends, Uh, it's special to still have the respect of the players that uh, they understand, they know that I won it three times. Daniel Medvedev referred to it. Sasha Sverre referred to it. And that, to me, is just such an honor that they actually have any idea about the history of the game, which is why they're there. So, yeah, it was special, but not because it was 40, trust me.
1: Speaking of the history of the game, Matt, is it possible that the history books are going to reflect, maybe to some extent, unfairly, on Rafael Nadal's achievement because of the lackluster performance by his opponent, Casper Rude, in the final, that people will write this off as kind of a ho-hum 14th French Open victory if there is a such thing, and maybe lose sight of the fact that this guy did something unprecedented, which was that he beat four top ten players in the world en route to this victory.
2: Um, I'm not sure. I think everybody was a bit surprised that Casper Rude did not um, – Put up more of a resistance. Obviously, that's up to uh, Nadal, but uh, at, the, at the same time, he's thirty-six years old. I won a French Open in nineteen eighty-eight, and I beat Henri Leconte seven-five-six-two-six-one, um, which is just one more game to him than Caspar Ruud got. So I don't think no, I don't think so. I think um, it's five sets for the men's. It took over two hours. It was uh, a celebration of Nadal's greatness from the first point to the last, nearly. Uh, it was a bit closer in the second set. But, yeah, I think we've been spoiled with so many great finals between the big three over the last 15 years. Um, and I think things are getting back to normal, where the, the guy who's better has uh, a, a more of a history behind him and has won more, wins easily in the finals. And that's the way it used to be, way more often than having close matches. Uh, the Federer-Djokovic sort of Wimbledon saga where Federer had two match points. Those days, are they, they might never, ever show up again, uh, and especially not on clay. So uh, Nadal has never played a five-set match in the finals of the Roland Garros. He's only played three, I believe, to this point. John Isner once, Novak Djokovic once, Felix auger aliassime once. And that's over 16 years. So now I think the final was um, just a statement by Nadal. So, no, it was a great tournament. Kasparu did unbelievably well. Uh, no one really thought he could beat Nadal. I did think he could win a couple of sets, but there you go. There, that's clay court tennis for you, and that's the greatness of Rafa Nadal. So I think in the end, every all eyes go towards Sasha Sverd. I mean that that uh, sprained ankle turns out that it might be a couple of broken ligaments. That's where that's what where everybody's um, eyes are on, and it was really sad to see, but it was great to see Rafa. Respond the way he did. Um, and uh, it just again cemented the champion that he is. It's not about tennis, it's about the human being.
1: Multiple torn ligaments. He's had surgery. Uh, Wimbledon is out of the question. The U.S. Open at full strength would certainly seem unlikely. You mentioned Matt at the top of the show about Amalie Moresmo. and I thought she did a she does a great job as tournament director. She is one sharp cookie, and she was on with Tennis Channel a couple of times, and I was very impressed with her presence and her her extremely. Um, common sense approach to everything with regard to the scheduling of matches and some of the adjustments that they may make going forward but one of the things that was smart that she did was to put you on the court and one of the trickier interviews and the only one that I saw you do because Tennis Channel picked it up was the interview after the Zverev match and you talk about these oftentimes these finals that weren't competitive and and what have you but boy, the match against Sasha in the semis was certainly shaping up. Had Zareb wins that second set tiebreak, you know, he may be there quite some time. And it was, really, it was really gruesome to see that and to have it end that way. Uh, I felt like you were in a tricky spot in that interview with Rafa. How did what happened change your approach to that?
2: It changed everything. I had even prepared a question in French. which I don't speak at all, but I uh, uh, prepared a question because Rafa wants to answer one question in French uh, to say that he played well and thanked the crowd, and then he goes into English. And I had that all prepared, and I was going to ask him about not having a tray, which is what you get for being a runner-up in the French Open. I remember my wife once said to me after I lost uh, in the 1987 finals, so I had two wins and two finals, and we unpacked my bag coming home to the French Open. And she looked at the, the runner up a tray and she says, We don't need any more of these. We have two of them, Matt. And of Ooh. course I won an eighty-eight. So I was gonna say something to Rafa, listen, you can win on Sunday, but I'll I'll you know, I have a couple of these trays, you can have one. So I was gonna try and be funny with him. Yeah. And then Sasha thing happened, and um again, it was impossible to, to go anywhere. So Again, I mean, I think Rafa shows that he's that he's, way more than, um, he's way more than just a, a great clay-court player or the best player of, of all time. He's just such a humble human being. And I don't know if you saw that, Andy, back home, but when Sasha left the locker room on crutches, Rafael Nadal is walking out behind him with his racket bag on his shoulders like a little kid. So he waited all that time after the match to get to get treatment to get crutches and everything and they walked out together and this is like an hour and a half two hours after the match so uh rafa is all about um being liked in the locker room and having the respect of his peers for sure Uh, and um yeah a lot of respect for rafa nadal right now
1: one of the surprise wins of the event going back to sasha was the win over over carlos alcaraz and is it a is it merely matt's um, a case of overlooking a guy that was actually the higher seed, the more experienced player, the older player because of the call it maybe recency bias that we have of the electrifying tennis that Alcaraz has been playing. It doesn't matter. The surface winning in Miami, winning in Barcelona, becoming the only player ever to beat Nadal and Djokovic in the same clay court tournament. Did we potentially set our expectations a little high or is this just what the pro tour should be is, a coin flip between players like that.
2: It should be a coin flip for sure, but I actually thought about that. Uh, there are players that are playing great and then there are great players. And Carlos Alcaraz came in playing great, but he's not a great player. Uh, Dani Medvedev is a great player. Sasha Sverre, in my eyes, is a great player. He's been doing it for four, five, six years. Rafa Nada obviously is a great player. He doesn't even have to play good. Iga Swantek, as a 21-year-old uh, is, a, is a great player. Was she playing great? She played all right, but she's such a great player that she wins these matches. And Carlos Alcaraz was playing great, but he's not a great player yet. He nearly lost to Albert Ramos uh, Vinolas, who's very mediocre, but he's great mediocre, but because of the, the mentality between two Spanish, an older guy, younger guy. So he, he's playing great. He's not a great player yet. You need to win something. You need to prove a point, whether it's in the Grand Slams or whether you win the ATP finals like Sasha Zverev did, winning Madrid, winning Cincinnati, winning so many ATP 1000 events. And and that turns you into a great, a great player. So uh, I think that's what happened. Uh, Carlos Alcaraz was kind of flat in a way, but you can't play tennis that freely and that wildly when it actually means a whole lot to you. It's hard to win hitting drop shots. We saw that with Unz Jabur on the women's side, mm. who was the hottest player on the women's side. And you come in and she's trying to win matches by hitting drop shots and playing aggressively with feel. That doesn't work in majors. You have to play defensively with feel. But when you're in the driver's seat, you got to be aggressive, you got to use power. And I think Carlos Alcaraz needs to... Uh, iron out a few of the wrinkles in his game which is don't hit drop shots on big points it worked in Miami I admit but it's not going to work in your career and I think he's a little um, immature in terms of tactics as as of now he will be a great player one day but he's not at the, at this point
1: when we look at the other half of the draw and of course going into the tournament match you know the the, the half with with Djokovic and Nadal and Alcaraz was, was getting, you know, garnering, you know, 90% of the attention and rightfully so they were the, they were the three Vegas favorites, if you will. But when we go down to the bottom half and we see a matchup between Casper Ruud and Holger Roon. Yeah. Now here's a guy that we've talked about on the show. Johnny has, been really kind of nailing it with some of these players to watch. He brought up Jensen Brooksby before he started to go off. He started talking about Alcaraz, and suddenly here this guy is now. And Olga Rune was another guy that I remember Johnny mentioning in his Players to Watch segment, and suddenly here this guy shows up at the latter part of a major. You know How far can this kid go? He's not a big guy. He's about your size.
2: Yeah, he's not a big guy. He's really strong. He's got unbelievably strong legs um and the bottom line is actually it's interesting that you bring up uh, jensen brooksby because both of them have kind of the same um the same uh, uh, natural talent for for playing tennis and winning matches but they also have a little bit of the same problem which is attitude you got if you don't have a good attitude on tour and if you don't treat your opponent and umpires and the player box with respect your opponent on that day will actually find another reason to beat you. And Holger Garoon was a little bit immature in the way he was on court. He was checking every mark. He was asking the umpire to come down to check every mark. And Kaspar is is probably the most fair player you've seen since 1982. He's not going to tell you the ball is in if it's out. Uh, Holger Rune was was gesturing to your player box. You got to get over that stuff, which is why Sasha Svera beats Alcaraz in the end. There, it's not about hitting tennis balls. It's it's about respect. So Holger Rune is very young. Uh, Jensen Brooksby is very young. I'm sure they will be at some point great players, but they have to learn the simplest lesson of all, which is you have to respect the environment that you're in, your opponent, the cause. You have to respect your player's box because if you don't, the locker room will go, okay, this guy I am not losing to. At least I'm not laying down. So very talented, unbelievable shots, but you have to grow up. And show maturity on the tennis court. It, it's just otherwise it doesn't work.
1: As before, we go to break. It was you made it widely known, and it, it was picked up by the headlines that you had Joker as the favorite to win this thing. And yep. and with the tennis that he was playing, it was you know it was hard to dispute that projection. But then we saw what we saw, and here we go again. And it's it's just the same old story with Nadal at the French, but. The embrace at the end was lukewarm at best and Joker storms off the court kind of a little bit more in anger than maybe what we're used to. You know, where is Novak Djokovic right now in your opinion?
2: You know what? I think I'm not, I have no idea. I'm only going out on a limb here and I'm guessing. Novak Djokovic is a player who's number one in the world. He's going into the grass court season where he's the clear favorite to win Wimbledon. There are no ranking points. So whatever he does, He loses his ranking points from last year, and he goes down to number two or three. Daniel Medvedev, who's obviously Russian, they're not allowed to play at Wimbledon, he will become number one in the world. Now, he can't supposedly go back to Australia in the next three years, because there was refused a visa last year. And at this particular moment, he's not allowed to play the US Open. Wow. Yeah, Novak is is in a horrible situation. Uh, Nothing's really his fault in a way only because he stands for not being forced to be vaccinated I mean it's, 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 a, it's a horrible situation I do think that just like I thought Rafa Nadal surprised him he surprised me I don't know why he would after winning it 13 times but Rafa Nadal brings, brings intensity and a game that Novak Djokovic cannot match up to on a clay court he's taken too many risks uh, maybe Novak was not ready. Even though he won Rome, maybe he wasn't ready physically. Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I was convinced that Novak at night uh, had the upper hand. But uh, again, Rafa Nadal, did he surprise me? Yes, but not really. I mean, I'm stupid, really. I mean, how do you not bet on Rafa Nadal to win the French Open? I don't know how, but he doesn't play that good in the first week. And Novak plays unbelievable. And then this happens. It's like a shock.
1: You were surprised, but not shocked with Nadal. An and then last thing that you just made a comment about defending points at Wimbledon and losing. Does, do everybody's points come off? Like, do you not have to defend your, how does that work? Cause it seems like that's a lot of people with a lot of points. It's not just the simple fact of the WTA and the ATP making the statement Well, because of what Wimbledon has done. That's, that's got rippling effects. The more I think about that, how does that work, Matt?
2: They're literally as of now taking all the ranking points that there were won last year at the Wimbledon. They're taking them off their players, wow. and they don't have them anymore. And for wow. Novak, that's 2,000 ranking points. And he goes from six seven hundred, I think he has now, to 6,700, even if he wins Wimbledon. Andy Murray famously said in the last couple of weeks, well, who cares how many points you get when you play Wimbledon some players do. Some players care about the ranking. Uh, and I actually agree with Andy Murray. You win Wimbledon. Who cares how many ranking points you get? It doesn't matter. You win Wimbledon. Majors are still bigger than the ranking. But for some players, being number one in the world or number nine or ten instead of eleven is a huge, it's a huge situation. So I'm not sure I'm expecting every player in the top hundred to go to Wimbledon because of the money or the the pride that it is to make the fourth round of the quarter so Wimbledon, but um, I think players that know they can't win, why would they want to go on a grass court and and, and sort of destroy their game because the the courts are not great even at Wimbledon and sort of lose your feel. So it, it's a it's really a bad situation. I, I I believe the ATP and the WTA might have jumped the gun slightly, but um, we only know that in twenty five years whatever you know, whatever effect it had on, uh, on Russia and the war in Ukraine.
1: Lots more to get to. We are kickserveradio.com. AZ, Mats and Johnny, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Lots more to get to, so don't go away because we are back right after this.
0: Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's V-Lander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Matt Spielander now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high quality training equipment in a clean and bright spacious workout area. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all time greats in the sport of tennis. After my clinic with Matt, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to matsvlandertennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho.
1: Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com, Tennis Channel Podcast Network. match we talked all about the tournament uh, as far as the guys that are, you know, making all the headlines now. But the guys that used to make the headlines back in the day of which you were one, you guys always get together and play these legends events. And a couple of times we went back and forth and you're like, oh, I'd love to come on radio with you, but I'm about to go play a match. And tell me about the experience of playing at the French 40 years later. And, and it sounds like you played a little doubles with the X-Man, Xavier Melisse.
2: I did, yes. I was uh, luckily hooked up with Xavier Melis, who's um, an unbelievable tennis player, an unbelievable ball striker, a nice guy. Um, so it's kind of nerve-wracking. I mean, if you're working in TV like I do for Eurosport, um, doing the interviews on court, and then suddenly you got to play. So you feel like, do I have to warm up? Yes, I need to hit for 20 minutes, and then you go and play. And then suddenly you walk on court, and there's three, 4,000 people sitting in the stands. Wow. And, uh, and they're kind of, they've just watched Zverev play. <laughs> <Ultra>. And <laughs> oh, then we God. come on and they're like, oh, Max Verlander won three times. He must, can he win games against Zverev? Maybe a set? No, of course not. I can't even win a point against Nadal or Zverev. So it's a little nerve wracking. I've tried to explain to people when they ask me, did you win? Like we don't win because we don't have an opponent. It's four of us. It's us. We're trying to, uh, to entertain the crowd. Right. We're trying to have a good time. We're trying to play good points. And we're trying to not play uh, each other's weakness. Uh, it's not a competition where anyone is trying to win. We're sort of the Rolling Stones that are playing the same songs that people want to hear. And doing the same technique, although much slower. But what's really cool is that you show up on the sea. So I played on Wednesday, I think. And it was hot as hell and you realize how fast these tennis balls are uh and i believe that's the night that's is that the night that nadal i played the daytime when nadal and djokovic played oh and i thought oh my goodness these balls are so fast these courts are playing so fast and then the next day there's a little bit of rain it's uh 15 centigrades which is what 65 degrees 60 degrees And it's slow as hell. So that's really what I enjoy the most, is to understand the conditions and to understand how good the women and the men are depending on the conditions. What can they do depending on how far the balls fly and how fast it is? That's really the best part of it, except, of course, hanging out with uh, Xavier Malice, Cedric Piolin, Mansur Barami, um, and everybody is trying to look, uh, make each other look really good. Uh, and I think most of the time we succeed, but wow, I wish they turned the speedometer off when it's serve Andy.
4: <laughs> well,
1: one thing I, two people I have to ask about because with when you're telling me it's just a show and you're there to entertain the fans, okay, with Mansoor Barami, I see him like sitting in a chair and hitting balls and and, and, spin, and all of the different spin shots and the tweeners. And I mean the guy invents shots every single match. But when you're telling me that John McEnroe's not out there to well, he didn't maybe play. just go a little, but if he does, when when he's out there, you mean to tell me he doesn't still compete a little bit?
2: I said most, not <laughs> all. Johnny <laughs> Mack wants to get out there and be, and be competitive for sure. He also tries to put on a show. It's I not, know he does. Yeah, it's not a, it's, it's really, we understand our, our, our positions in the professional world of tennis. We respect uh, where everyone is. Everyone deserves to be where they are. Um, and uh, it's really a celebration of the game. And I, I can't believe the number of people that actually come out and maybe even buy tickets to watch us. But I guess I am a golfer like you, Andy, or at least we're trying to be. Oh, wait a minute. I would come out and watch, you know, the old guys play golf. It doesn't matter how far they hit the ball. In fact, if they hit the ball as far as I do, I can relate to them more. So I think that's what's happening. Um, It's a great celebration of tennis and uh, the French Open. They do a great job with uh, with, uh, bringing us in for sure, Uh, even though it's really stressful. I have to tell you, really stressful.
1: Having watched you for the time that you and I have spent together over the last few years, people have got to understand, you need to believe me when I tell you this, not Matt. This guy has the most brilliant hands and misses one to two returns an hour at most. And uh, it hits such a clean ball, and it's such a thing of beauty. And I agree, you you do a beautiful job of playing exhibition tennis. But it is a it is a beautiful level of tennis. So anybody that gets the opportunity to play, watch you play any kind of an exhibition, it, it really is a thing of beauty. Now,
2: Andy, let me yes. bring something up very quickly to you because sure. something and this is this is a very serious. Uh, a serious comment that I have. Okay. And it's only because he brought up the hands that I have. And I think I have pretty decent hands. Oh. I realized the difference between the great players of today, which is Nadal and Djokovic. Okay. The hands they have in defense is the difference between the younger generation, whereas Tsitsipas or Zverev or Medvedev in defense, they do not have great hands or they might have great hands, but they don't use them. Whereas when you watch Novak or Rafa in defense, they throw in a slice to buy some time. They throw in a high looping forehand to buy some time. When they dictate they use power, but in defense, they use feel. And maybe that's what separates the big three from everybody else. I'm not sure, but it was so apparent this year that that older generation, they have maybe better hands than the younger generation or the younger generation are, are told to not play defense in a defensive way, play defense by smacking it. And if you miss it, the point's over and we go on to the next one. And and that's why I actually think you're right. Hands is overlooked in tennis. Hands is something you're born with, for sure. But you can learn how to have good hands uh, if you know what shot to hit. And with Novak and Rafa, wow, the hands they have in defense this year is unbelievable. Uh, Coco Goff has some of that hands, for sure, in defense. Uh, Iga Swantek has some of it, although she's nearly always aggressive, but... But that's the big difference. So, to all coaches and juniors out there, don't forget about the feel shot. Maybe not in, in, uh, in an offense, but in defense, you got to play with feel. Work your way into the point.
1: Well, maybe that's why I'm still so impressed when I watch you play, is because I do see that and I don't see as much of it as I maybe would expect to see in watching the guys that are still doing it now. you mentioned Coco Goff, and we started at the top of the show, and I asked you a question about whether or not the history books might reflect, to some extent, maybe unfairly on Rafa's win because of the uh, lack of a competitive final. And then my, my question about Coco Goff is, will the history books reflect accurately about her accomplishment of getting to the final of both the singles and the doubles in 2022. And here's a person who, you know, went out and, and and clearly she would probably be the first to admit that, that the moment was a bit big for her in that singles final uh, played a little bit more of a competitive doubles final, but the singles and the doubles final at age 18. I mean, where do, where do you stand on that accomplishment?
2: Yeah. I think that's for her own confidence. I think it's a way bigger accomplishment to get to the doubles finals. Okay. I really do. I think wow. that, that tells you because I know that from my own experience. When I was getting to double finals or grand slams, I realized, wow, I don't have, so it's not about movement anymore. It's about racket skills. It's about tactics, about understanding what, sh- what shot to hit at the right time. Whereas in singles, you got to get there first. If you, if you can't get there, you can't hit the shot. Uh, in doubles, you can get to everything. So to me, uh, her doing well in doubles is an, it's an amazing accomplishment her getting to the singles finals and, and kind of doing poorly, I suppose, in a way. But Iga Swantek, then again, is someone that could win the French Open nine or 10 times, I think, if she keeps up uh, the pace of play that she has during the point. Uh, getting to the singles final, yeah, it's a great accomplishment. Does it give her a lot of confidence? Mm, I think it gives her a lot of a reality check where wow, I am really far away from the number one player in the world. Whereas in the doubles court, you're, you're one of many and I'm one of the best. So I think for her, the doubles is a, is a huge confidence boost. It tells us that she's a great tennis player um, and she just didn't have enough in singles. But I would think that she's going to improve. I think Iga Swantek is going to be a big problem for her and for everyone because she's playing at a completely different pace than the other ladies whether she makes or misses or makes unforced errors or winners, the pace that she plays at will win her tournaments just because she plays faster than everybody else, just like Novak does when, he's well, when he plays well and like Rafa is doing lately. So for Coco Golf, I think she has a lot of things that she needs to work out. Her forehand swing is too long at times. Second serve is, is a vulnerable, but she has a mind of her show on her own that is so mature Hopefully, not too mature where she's fearful, where she's still naive and and feels kind of innocent. But uh, no, I I believe she's going to be a great player, but she's up against one of the best players of all time, an Iga Swantek for sure.
1: Almost a little like Andy Roddick being up against Roger back in the day. You know, when Johnny and I were talking, Matt, about about Coco uh, during the tournament on, on, on a little live radio here in Denver, we talked about her ability to adapt her game to clay, that we knew that she was a great mover but we didn't know that she was a great mover on that clay. And she looked like she really was. She looked very comfortable. One of the things that you've pointed out that I was uh, specifically drawn to and watching her was her, her ability to change things up and to slice that forehand and to show variety in her game. How well does that speak of the team around her in terms of creating this well-rounded game with this well-rounded athlete with all of these skills and then to be able to take that from surface to surface?
2: No, really cool. I mean, you've seen her mom and dad. They've been around her um, for the last three or four years on tour, which sometimes as a, as a former tennis pro, you would say, okay, it's time to let go at some point. But they're obviously doing a great job because I interviewed Coco on court after the finals, about 15, 20 minutes after the finals. And remember, she, she sort of said famously that it's not going to change my life if I win or lose my my people that love me are still going to love me uh blah 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 and then she's very healthy but she was still crying tears uh-huh. were still coming out of her eyes 20 minutes after the final so i asked her wow it's is is it kind of cool or hard to find out how much it means to you to not win this finals because that's in the end what matters If you're going to win tournaments, is it how much does this mean to you? So I think that's where she needs to kind of sort of change her tune a little bit. It's not okay to lose. You don't go in having nothing to lose everything, everything to win. If you lose, you lose, you lose everything. So she's very mature, unbelievably mature. The parents are doing an unbelievable job. She learned how to play on clay. She can play doubles. So her, her curve in terms of improvement is pointing upwards. Every single time I see her, At the same time, there has to be some sort of desperation and fear of losing that is bigger than life, that is bigger than being a good person, whatever. Because tennis decisions, as you well know, Andy, they're not logical. They're made in your heart. you got to feel the tactical changes in a match. And I don't think she felt it in the finals. And I think it has to mean so much that you actually nearly fear for your professional athletic life. And and as I applaud her maturity and all that, absolutely prefer to see that human being. But to win Grand Slams, you got to be a bit of a nut, a bit of a jerk, and you got to find a reason to dislike your opponent and find the best in yourself in that particular moment. Uh, And uh, being a well-rounded person doesn't always mean you become a great champion of winning tennis matches.
1: All right, let's go to break. And when we come back, we will be joined by Johnny Levine, who clearly has a lot on his plate today. But I think he's going to join us for this third segment. If we're lucky, you're listening to kickserveradio.com. This is AZ, Johnny and Matts, And we got more to come, so don't go away. We are part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Hey guys, Andy Zoden here with Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm excited because we're joined by Courtney Ward. And Courtney, you are in sports nutrition and you are with Body Fuse. Talk about how people. North of the age of 45 are keeping fit and some of the things that they're doing to look like you do.
3: <laughs> well, hey, thank you, Andy. I so appreciate you having me on the podcast. And yeah, my company, Body Fuse, it's a sports nutrition company, and I'm 48 years old. And first and foremost, I think we just simply after 40, 45 years old, we have to keep moving, doing the things you like to do and support that with sports nutrition. And the Body Fuse lineup has everything to help you from pre workout, intra workout, and post workout. And I think, you know, post 40 folks, it becomes very critical for us to support our bodies both nutritionally and physically. So, you know, speaking to weight loss, the BodyFuse lineup has some great products uh, that specifically help to increase resting metabolic rate. And that's, that's a product called a Thermogenics. And moving your body is key as well and doing it smart and supporting that with a post-workout is also very very important as we as we get older.
1: How do folks get a hold of you? Our demographic of the folks that listen to our show happen to be right in your sweet spot, and I think it's a, a kind of a match made in heaven.
3: My company is a company called Exclusive Nutrition Products, and I own uh, within Exclusive Nutrition. We have basically three brands. Body Fuse is what we've been talking about. Is 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 one of them. Black Dragon Labs is the second and next level nutrition is the third. And our websites, uh, bodyfuse websites is bodyfuseusa.com and Black Dragon Labs is blackdragon Labs.com.
1: She is Courtney Ward and she is a sports nutritionist and a tennis player. Courtney, thank you very much.
3: Well, thanks so much to you. I appreciate it, Andy.
1: Welcome back, everybody. Final segment, the French Open Recap. KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. And Johnny Levine is back with us. Um, Johnny, when we bring you on, because of the fact that you are a tournament owner of the Arizona Tennis Classic, sometimes it's, ta- it's, it's a good time to talk about the business of tennis. And I do want to get to you, but I want to start, Matt, with you on this question, because this Live Golf Tour is now in the headlines in a big way and we're seeing you know high profile players like Dustin Johnson relinquishing their PGA membership and some dominoes are falling in different directions and I don't know that we've necessarily been able to consume enough of this to be able to make heads or tails of it but I guess my question would be would the sport of tennis kind of be sitting on the sideline and potentially eyeballing this as a a business model that they should either be fearful of or consider to be a potential opportunity going forward?
2: Well, we had it with the uh, WCT, World Championship Tennis, and the ATP at the same time. Uh, it was called the Grand Prix Tour in those days. But I think the big difference here is that in golf, you're actually not playing against your opponent. You're playing your own ball. And if you shoot 25 under in Saudi Arabia or on a different tour, you might still be playing well. Whereas in tennis, if you separate the 200 top players, the male or female, and you play 100 here. You're not playing against the best players in the world. And then you get to the majors, and you got to play the best players in the world every round. So I think it's, there's a big difference between the way that the uh, competition is in golf and tennis, because you are still playing your own ball in golf. But, um, I mean, they've tried it in tennis, didn't work. I'm not sure. I don't think this is a tour that will survive necessarily, but um, I suppose it speaks a lot for how much money means to to, to players and maybe how unhappy un, uh, they are with the PGA tour, which seems hard to believe in a way, but the majors are everything for these players in tennis and in golf. Uh, and in, in golf, I believe they can play the three majors without playing the PGA, even if they play a different tour. That's what I think. But yeah, it's it's a scary proposition for sure. If that happens in tennis, we have a big problem.
1: Johnny, as a tournament owner, one of the things that you have found through the school of hard knocks is how hard it is to really run a tournament at a profit. You're one of the few that has done it. You actually, even to the extent of, of being able to make a, a six figure donation to uh, the Phoenix children's hospital, but how, how tricky of a proposition is it to go into uh, tennis as a, as a business venture? And do you maybe see golf's point in trying to do something like this?
4: Well, as far as, um, you know, the Arizona tennis classic goes, you know, we, we went through the growing pains the first year, Andy, and, and it was pretty brutal when, um, you know, that budget just kept growing because we wanted to do the event, right. You know, it was first year and we, so we, we didn't know what to expect. And, you know, we were in the red the first year, um, but we felt we learned so much going into the following year. And unfortunately the second year that we did it, we got canceled three days before. So we lost all sorts of deposits and then going into the, you know, then the following year we didn't do it. And then last year we were very well prepared and we had a title sponsor. So it changed the game for us. So look at, I mean, a lot of tournament owners and, and organizers go into the business because of their passion and love for the game and they're willing to take losses but no matter you know how wealthy you are these 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 people they don't want to continue to lose money so at some point it's got to work because no one is just going to keep keep losing money every year and i think uh, as far as the golf situation with the new new tournament uh, you know it's completely uh as we know well funded and you know these players are making decisions based on um, you know, economics, some of them, and some are looking more at the history and wanting to do what they think is the right thing and stick with p g a but in the end, you know you might have some players that are looking at a finite you know earning power, and they want to take the money and and run and so you know it's it's that's a tough one. you can go both ways on that
2: but you know what guys that that, that but what it is though it's a shot in the arm for professional sports because in the end. You can pay. Uh, you can do a commercial during the Super Bowl for 30 seconds. You can pay millions and millions of dollars. Or you can support professional athletes that are doing their best every time they step on the golf course or the tennis court. And the, the marketing value of that is impossible to, to calibrate. You don't know how much that is worth in people's eyes. But because you're sponsoring and promoting professional athleticism, which is not the stock market, there is no cheating going on. There is no bad call. It's just, it's right in front of you. And I think that companies in the end, like Oracle, actually benefit from being part of it. BNP, Paribas, whether they lose money or not, doesn't really matter because it's such a naive and, and a true way of promoting goodwill through professional sports. And I think that's where, where, where that's why people do it. I really do. I mean, if they're businessmen, that's why they should do it. If they love tennis, of course they should do it. But even in this this golf tour in Saudi Arabia, I think that's, you know, you have players trying their, their best. I think that's why they do it. I really do.
1: I think that's, a, that's an optimistic way to look at it. I think other people might say, well, and that's just going to be another place for, legal gambling to connect itself and then how does that affect some of the outcomes i think that that has been a big game changer both both for good and for bad i think that it's gotten to a point where people were going to do it anyway and that's just going to be another outlet for them and we're seeing certainly DraftKings is doing a great job working with with tennis channel and lots of other sports and it's giving it's giving athletes a lot more to play for and 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 spectators a lot more to consume all right, guys, before we go, Johnny, you and I have something that we, we need to talk about. Uh, and we hate to end the show on a somber note, but um, we do need to mention the loss of, of one of the truly beautiful souls um, in our sport. And that was Lori Martin, who was, um, you know, my colleague with USPTA, uh, the president of the Southwest Division, uh, who, who at age 56 earlier this week on, on June 6th, passed away. Uh, suddenly from a domestic accident. And what what a beautiful soul. I did not know her well until recently when at the last executive committee meetings in Florida, I was seated uh, next to she and Amy Badger, both from, uh, both from the Southwest Division. And um, she did so much for tennis and did it for all the right reasons. And, and we are heartbroken in the sport of tennis right now, Johnny, and being that she's you know, from your neck of the woods down there in Phoenix, I wanted to give you also an opportunity to maybe say a few words about about this loss.
4: You know, Andy, um, you told me about it yesterday, and um, Lori was was really a tennis stalwart in this community in in Phoenix, and um, she was a tennis coach at, at Xavier for many many years. Xavier and
1: Preparatory School, which is the, Z- the-
4: Xavier High School, correct right. and. And, um, was very revered as a coach and actually instituted in 2009, a no cut program where she had, uh, you know, kids come out, whether they could make the team or not, but they would be able to have experience tennis and learn tennis and be involved in tennis. And, you know, I think she had close to a hundred girls coming out to, to, to be involved in tennis. So it's just a huge loss. And it's a very sad, um, sad situation. And my heart goes out to her family and, uh, and and her friends and the Xavier community as well. And, you
1: know, just I'll, I'll just finish by saying that, you know, you mentioned, Johnny, about the no cut program and all the girls that she had. She also had those girls heavily involved in philanthropic efforts as well. So that's that's where her heart was. She gave a lot to tennis, but she gave a lot to charity. And she gave a lot, not just to the community down there, but to the community. Uh, I, I would venture to say, not just nationwide, but, but internationally as well. And, uh, Lori, we love you and we will miss you. And, uh, as you say, Johnny, to her family, we send our best. Um, and, uh, and, and definitely wanted to make sure that we, we made mention of that loss. Uh, final word to you, Matt's, as we move from the clay court season to the grass court season, it's a different situation now. Uh, there's a little bit more time to move from one to the other, but because of the fact that this is the 40-year the anniversary of you winning your first French Open, this is the 40-year anniversary of having to go from being a French Open champion to go play Wimbledon. How different was it then?
2: I mean, it was so different. I Actually, um, they put me on center court in 82 in the first round against Heinz Gunthardt, ah. and uh, I can't believe that I beat him easily. Wow. But that's because the grass was green. And you can be a shitty volleyer when the grass is green. <laughs> All you have to do is make the volley and the ball doesn't bounce. And then you get to the second week and then you play volleyers like Ed Stefan Edberg or Pat Cash or Don McInerney and you realize, wow, I actually don't volley good enough on a, on a dry grass court. So uh, I think that the most important thing uh, about the grass court season is that you get to a Hertogenbosch or a Stuttgart and the grass is green. The Friday, Saturday, Sunday before the tournament starts – Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the grass is green. And by the time you, you get to the semis or the finals, you're now playing on a hard court. So the adjustment that you have to make in your game is really, really hard. It's really, really uh, dangerous physically. You don't know if you slip or slide. I would think that Wimbledon, without any ranking points, they might lose a few players that say, okay, I know I can't win Wimbledon, like Andy Murray said who cares how many points you get if you win Wimbledon? I don't care about the points. But there are some players that cannot win Wimbledon. They know that. They can make the third or the fourth round. Now, is the money going to for- make them go? Or is it about the ranking points? So I'll be very interested to see what happens in, in about two and a half weeks um, if uh, how many players actually pull out of Wimbledon. Um, I think this, the, the state is a very uh, serious and sad situation, obviously. But I'm going. And I'm going to be, it's going to be fun as hell. Uh, grass court is a complete different game uh, that I don't quite um, take very close to my heart, but uh, I love watching players in pain. And
4: you are a Wimbledon champion. In double. Yes. It's the
1: 36 year anniversary of Matt's winning the doubles with Yoki Neistrom in 86. All right, Johnny, I lied. Last word was going to go to Matt's. It's going to go to you because he brings up a great point. If Matt's Vlander doesn't win three French opens, and make several other finals. Does he maybe win Wimbledon? Because he was hurt oh, by the fact that he didn't have time to adjust to the grass. And we'll give him the benefit of the doubt that with a little bit more time
4: to prepare, does he maybe win one? No, because you have to look at Bjorn Borg, who won six okay, Frenches and went back to back. I don't know how many of those years, but four. it didn't four. So it didn't affect Borg. So I'm going to say I, I can't give Mats that. Okay. Wow, that's the first. I won thing in
2: Australia though, Johnny. I won in Australia when you gave me two months on the grass. And that's the first yeah. thing you've not did given you see him. What that, did you guys see what Casper Ruud said about Wimbledon? No. No. Yeah, he said he prefers it to play golf on.
1: Ooh, that sounds wow. like a that sounds like a like a, a next generation Yvonne Lendl comment. Exactly.
2: <laughs> Better for the cows. And
1: Lendl used to say that he was allergic to it. And uh, while he was standing on a golf course, he was being interviewed and said, I'm allergic to grass, so I'm not playing Wimbledon, as he was about to tee up a seven iron into a, about the ninth green. All right, you're listening to kickcerveradio.com, the French Open Recap. Looking forward to chatting with you guys, talking a little grass court tennis as we go. Thank you, seven-time major champion, three-time French Open champion, V-Lander, Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American, Johnny Levine. I'm Andy Zoden. We are KickServe Radio, and we are out. See you soon.